Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello. Thank you for downloading. I'm Luke Jones, sitting in for Matt Chorley. In a moment, we will hear some of the best policy ideas going. They are literally prize-winning, and uh, Suzanne Haywood has been adjudicating over the uh, Sir Jeremy Haywood Prize. But first, our fantastic columnists, David Aronovich and Andy Sylvester. Um, I'll pick both of your brains on the on that, if that's all right, on, the, um, on who you'd... Not exempt from isolation, but who you might actually insist does isolate david have you got any anyone in mind i was thinking estate agents personally <laughs> what because they keep on scragging um uh, uh mr witty when he uh when he goes <laughs> into well good it is, point, it, is, yeah. it is actually it is actually slightly funny how quite often when you get one of those stories about somebody behaving really badly and so on somebody who's holding down a good job it it seems to be an estate agent and often from Essex yeah ouch so okay so you're backing me on estate agents um Andy anyone else it could be a person it could be a profession who are you isolating for 10 days just out of just just twitter I think as a concept if social media could just go away and have a word with itself for 10 days and come back when it's ready for the, the rest of the world that would I think be quite a quite a helpful thing for us all and probably for society more generally <laughs> twitter users get inside uh lovely stuff hey, ha- hey andy don't you worry that it is the rest of the world now and it's us that isn't <laughs> perhaps so perhaps so i mean it has I, I think we may delve into this topic in a minute but yeah it does seem that increasingly even in in even in media circles you know we we spend an awful lot of time on twitter working out what we think the public thinks and then the public goes to the ballot booth and tells us all we were horribly wrong as a general rule are you both really intensely into twitter still david are you someone who's just Um, i use twitter i mean i don't i you know when people sort of say twitter's this and twitter's that it's a kind of absurdity really if you think about it because twitter's what you make of it you you decide who to follow so actually i'm going to be really tedious here i use twitter mostly as a tool really Mm. which is 
there are people going on Twitter from, let's say, a big story is coming up in Yemen. There will be journalists in Aden and places like that who are tweeting. I find out who they are. I follow them. I then get linked to this. I find out what's happening earlier than most people do. Uh, I get really good information from places. And if you use it like a tool, it's great. And then I also use it to publicise what I'm doing, which is mm. sort of you know, rather naughty in one way. Going on time's ready to talk to Luke, all of and, that, yeah. And the, yeah, exactly. And then if there's something really funny, and there quite often is, I like to see it and I like to pass it on and so on. Um, and so for all those people who, for whom Twitter is just people yelling at each other, all I can say is use the mute button. Just mute them. If you don't like what people are saying, you don't have to have them there. 20 years ago, you couldn't have had them there. Just mute them. They're yeah. gone. Well, there you go, Andy. Give that a go. That's me told. Yeah. I will. I'll get on it. I'll just have a good work. <laughs> I wasn't trying to lecture you about it, really. Um, no, it's fine. Me and Andy were taking notes. Um, let's turn to the, let's have a look at the front page of the Times. Um, it's interesting. What the, all what the government is is uh, trailing ahead of the Prime Minister's announcements later about uh, crime fighting. He's going to get tough on burglars. We're told uh, on the front of the Times. Um, interesting stuff in terms of putting GPS tags on, on more um, thieves and the like, but also um, rolling back all the restrictions imposed by Theresa May on on the police's use of, of stop and search, which seems quite controversial, Andy. Yeah, I think so. That was one of the, obviously the key elements of Theresa May's kind of. It, it, Theresa May could be defined by much um, when you look back at the premiership and indeed her time as Home Secretary. She was actually quite punchy on on police powers and and the use thereof. Um, I don't know. This feels like one of those policies which is dredged up from a big bin in Conservative HQ when they need to just come up with something that, that is slightly off the news agenda and a chance for them to slightly reset their relationship and show a bit of leg to a base, which is, I think, quite peeved with them at the moment as we come out of, of lockdown. Mm. Um, you know, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, etc. is never a policy that's going to go down badly with the electorate. But again, it's if some of the framing of it that this is some sort of strategic reset for the Tory party, this is part of post-pandemic politics, I think is is possibly a bit over-egging something that, that we may possibly have forgotten about by Sunday. David, do you agree? Is it just flashing a bit of policy ankle? Well, I was just thinking, it would probably does it replace the policy of being soft on burglars? Do you remember that one? Do you remember saying, actually, what we were going to do now is we we're going to be soft on burglars, because uh, uh, that's what we... No. So everybody says we're going to be tough on burglars. So the question is what you're going to do, or tough on, on, on whatever it is. There were very good reasons why um, stop and search powers became hugely problematic we all know what they were which was they were disproportionately used against people um, from ethnic minorities uh, in particular places that caused a lot of bad feeling so it was felt that actually you should monitor the the stops and uh, stop and searching and try and take that element out of it and have some kind of good reason hmm. of course what that results in is fewer stops and uh, stopping and searching. That means fewer stopping of people who actually might be doing something wrong, which makes people in communities actually feel sometimes a bit less safe. So five years later, you reverse the policy. And so in five years' time, we'll get to the point where people are saying this is harming community relations. We'll stop stopping and searching again for another five years until we put it back again. And maybe at some point in the very distant future when people realise that we've gone through this pattern constantly and that all it does is confuses people, we might settle down with agreeing actually what is the optimum policy. 
Yes. And it's interesting, Andy, that um, that it's burglars and robbers and thieves. Um, Yobs at Kit Malthouse, I heard on the radio saying this morning, um, that, that yep. he's being honed in on because that, that's the kind of thing which when people complain about the police, it's always thefts or burglaries gone uninvestigated. It's sort of it's sort of it's literally on people's doorstep. Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly on Times Radio's doorsteps. We've all heard Giles Corrin at length discussing the, oh, uh, gosh, the, yeah. the where's and wherefores of his of his nicked motor. But yeah, no, of course it is. Crime affects, you know, a lot of crime is hidden in this country. It still is. The drug trade, et cetera, et cetera. We see it flare up sometimes. It breaks the uh, breaks out of these sort of certain communities into the wider mainstream, and we all pay attention and say this is awful. But yeah, predominantly... The great British public is concerned about their car staying outside in the driveway. So, of course, they're going to attack them. It's the use of the word yobs I find extraordinary, which feels very uh, sort of late 90s, 90s, isn't it? Yeah. late 90s chic. Yeah. Um, I don't know, which is exactly what David is saying, right? We've been here before. Um, and until there's, and I, I hate to use this phrase because everyone always uses it, some sort of cross party consensus that perhaps there's a medium ground between you know, locking them up and throwing away the key and going into communities and working with youth groups and with schools to tackle the root causes. Um, we may still be discussing crime and punishment in, in yeah. years to come yeah. and electronic tags and prison votes and all the other policy ideas that get yeah. floated. It is, it, it is bizarre, of course, because actually the growing crime, as we know, is online crime. I mean, that's by mm. far and away the kind of biggest uh, growth gro- uh, in crime. That's where you're most likely to suffer loss and so on. And yet that never really seems to figure as a kind of eye-catching initiative by a government because people can't see it. It's a little bit like we're not at all bothered by um, uh, asylum seekers who come here by plane. We're only really bothered by those who come we can see in boats because boats are so kind of visible and physical and and so on. Um, So it is a sign also of our kind of lack of appreciation of reality and risk and so on, which, of course, governments and political parties exploit and respond to. Hmm. Uh, The trouble is that leaves them with the the problems that they haven't dealt with uh, building up over time. Speaking of wrong uns, um, Max Hastings' column in the in the paper today talks about um, MPs and how uh, we have got the brightest bunch uh, cluttering up the uh, the green benches at the moment. Andy, do you have any sympathy with uh, with Max's um, thesis that the sort of the, the brightest people um, don't actually go into politics? Oh, I think there's always been a disincentive to go into politics, right? Because you know it is. <laughs> Something of truism that you can, you know, earn more outside, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's also media scrutiny. Some people call it intrusion. I naturally call it scrutiny. Um, there are reasons that you wouldn't go into politics, but yeah, it does seem that what we've had recently, perhaps, is as the two major parties have become slightly more extreme. You know, when you think about the Corbynista take over the Labour Party, when you think about the sort of slightly populist culture war direction that maybe the Tory party is taking at the moment, that does naturally cut down again the number of people who are willing to put their head above the parapet and face the public. Because if you have to sign up to this set menu of a political party, you know, with their views on everything from crime and punishment to immigration to whether or not you should take the knee and all have to take a consistent line, then people of independent thought are probably minded to say, I think I'd rather just read the paper and Rant whilst I'm watching Question Time. So yes, there is an issue. There Describing is a genuine... it as a set menu sounds lovely, though. 
Well, I've always thought this about political parties in the modern world. That they are they are essentially something where you are served up a manifesto of a whole number of different things that you have to accept yeah. together, as opposed to the rest of the world, which whether it's our TV watching or or you know, anything else, you essentially go on values and issues and individual items, and we seem a bit it's a bit old fashioned, I think. I, mean, I think I think that latter point is a, is a really good point, which is political parties are, are forced to be because of the first past the post system are forced to be vast coalitions of people who essentially don't like each other and don't agree with each other, but unless they come together, can't possibly win an election, um, and that leads to all kinds of problems. The problem that Max Hastings was getting at also was the fact that actually fairly small electorates and selectorates in these political parties. Mm vote for leaders. So they gave us at the last election, they gave us Jeremy Corbyn versus Boris Johnson. And as I think I, I, mean, I certainly wrote at the time, this is the first election I can remember when I thought I could actually do a better job of prime minister than either of them. Uh, and I'd never felt like that before. Even with kind of Theresa May, I thought she'd actually make a better PM than me. But all going back, all of them would have done, um, uh, except those two. And are yet you those were the choices. Are you announcing an entry into politics right now, live on the programme, David? And absolutely not, because <laughs> firstly, they, firstly, as Andy quite rightly says, they can't afford me. Yes. They just can't yes. afford me. Um, secondly, why should I take that SHIT from people that politicians get for trying when they do are most honestly trying to do their jobs, yeah. rather than just take a bit of it on social media, which I can easily kind of brush well, off? Well, it's like what Max Hastings says in the paper. He quotes, uh, as he describes, the maverick Tory MP George Walden, who remarked lugubriously, who'd do it? No privacy, no respect, no money and no sex. But power. But power. But But power. And that is the big thing. You can actually do stuff if you're in government, um, which you can't do anywhere else. And that's the thing which is attractive, which is why you get a Rishi Sunak who's made millions out of, a he- out of hedge funds. He's married a billionaire woman, so he's never going to want for anything. And at that point, you can put yourself into politics mm. in a big way because you're going to exercise a lot of power, and that's fun. But Andy, it, but it sounds like both of you here are almost wholesale uh, subscribing to at least, well, at least part of the Dominic Cummings worldview. Because this is his point. Isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if I characterise it in that way. Certainly not if I have to take the whole lot. No, but I, I think it's, it's worth just saying, building on David's point there about the fact that most of these people are trying to work hard. You know, it is a pretty punishing job in pretty mm. forgiving circumstances, and the vast majority of them go in with the right intentions. What I would say, again, talking about those those issue based politics, I think is represent the future certainly and certainly seems to be the way that Europe has gone over the past few years and maybe Britain will go that way is those MPs that are able to do things those MPs that can point to successes tend to be those MPs who have picked one or two issues and just gone after them day after day and built that consensus and they've actually gone outside of the party structures think about Stella Creasy's work on on Wonga and payday lenders is one fairly obvious example where she changed the political weather and I think well you know there are MPs who will still be motivated by that I hope um going forward and uh, go on David what are you going to say well, I was going back much further. In fact, when I was a kid, um, there was uh, somebody like Sidney Silverman, who was the man who campaigned for the abolition of the death penalty. That was a big thing because there's always been a majority theoretically in favour of the death penalty in this country, although it's it's gone down over time. So to do that was an act of great kind of courage in the face of uh, a moral courage in the face of popular opposition. 
And yet, no party has ever really seriously sought to reintroduce the death penalty because none of them want to be responsible for it. And he did exactly what Andy said, which was this was, it could only have been done by a maverick MP then pulling together what the rest of the House knew it wanted to do, but up till then hadn't had the guts to do. Finally, uh, just for both of you, I want to pick you a word on the Olympics. Um, I wonder if you're both getting caught up in it all. Um, are you both, you know, weeping hot happy tears at, uh, at the gold mine that uh, Tokyo is turning out to be for, for Team GB? Andy, are you are you swooning? I was I was slightly underwhelmed, to be honest, by the start of it coming in. I'm usually quite excited by the Olympics, but, you know, the idea of no fans and so on cooled my enthusiasm. But, yeah, once you see the emotion of these people that have worked extremely hard over many years, Tom Daly being one obvious example, but, you know, even the 21-year-old Tom Pidcock, whose name I didn't know two days ago, but now feel like is my best friend and was happily... <laughs> <laughs> cheering from the rafters when they return on an open top bus um i have become swept up on it and i'm mercifully lucky that um there are other sporting elements at the moment as well including the lions so it's a wonderful sporting summer as we come to what might be hopefully the start if not the 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 beginning of the end the end of the beginning of this, this damned pandemic david what about you um, I'm afraid not really. Firstly, it's happening overnight, uh, and that means it's already taken place. And there's all the this joy happen, to wake up to. Now, no, no, not if it's already happened. It's just news by then, and actually, it's not even very interesting news by then, uh, and so on. And I was just thinking also, if they were to have the Olympic Taekwondo Championship in the house next door, I probably wouldn't go. Ouch. Um, uh, which means, which means, well, no, it's, I, I, I mean, no disrespect, but there's only so many things you can actually constructively be interested in. And quite hmm. a lot of Olympic sports don't take me that way. So um, when the track gets going, something I can really understand and relate to, then in that case, I will get excited. But unless I can actually watch it live, I just, uh, it's not the same. So can they please stop holding it on the other side of the world and only hold it on our side of the world? Bring it back in London every four years. Next next door to Casa de That's where we need to hold all the events, is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, those ones I won't go to. But uh, Thank you both so much for your time. That was David Ronovich and Andy Sylvester. In a moment, the best ideas you will hear on a podcast. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Now, time to hear some literally award-winning ideas. Cast your minds back a few months on the show. Uh, Matt covered the launch of the prize. It was an attempt to get some truly brilliant policy ideas uh, out of the brains of the great British public. Um, we thought out of politeness we'd ask you listening as well and this is what you came up with a national health service for pets to start holding elections on a saturday means tested free childcare for one and two year olds proportional representation 
rolling speed cameras. If not ban, then tax out of existence second homes. July the 5th, 2021 will be the 73rd anniversary of the creation of the NHS and I suggest that we establish a new national bank holiday. That was some of your contributions back in January. The prize, of course, set up by Suzanne Hayward in memory of her uh, husband. Suzanne's back with us. Hi, Suzanne. Hi. I think I was being quite harsh there, actually. Listening again, they're, they're actually not bad, are they? I thought some of those ideas were great, actually. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, I, I'm hoping that some of them got entered directly into the prize as well. Yes, uh, maybe not the NHS for pets, although I don't. it makes me laugh every time, but actually, the more you think about it. Anyway, moving on, the actual winners. Um, so, first of all, tell us, what were the actual categories uh, available, Suzanne? Well, we actually made it completely open. So the question that we asked people was, coming out of the pandemic, what sort of policy changes would you like to see? What's going to make this country a better place? And we made it open to anybody, any age. Uh, we had yeah, entries from overseas. We had entries from the UK. And they covered a huge range of different issues. And I should say, by the way, if anybody's interested in seeing some of the ideas that came up, apart from the ones that we're going to hear from our winners about uh, very shortly, they can go on the website, haywoodfoundation.com. And we've got a database there and you can search through and look at the kind of wide variety of, of fantastic mm. ideas that come forward. And why, remind us why you wanted to do this. Well, so my, my late husband always believed that these moments of national crisis, and he lived through a number of different national crises, including things like the financial crisis, they are terrible. I mean, absolutely awful. And, and I know a lot of people have been very, very badly affected by it. But they're also an opportunity for us to think about how to make this country better. Uh, and if we miss these opportunities to look positively to the future at things that we can change, then we, then we lose something. Hmm. So I was looking for great ideas that we could find, that we could then pass back to government so that they could, they could make things better coming out of the pandemic. And that was the idea behind the prize. And we were overwhelmed with entries, uh, over 2,000 uh, entries from across the country and beyond. Do you subscribe to the thing we were talking about um, about half an hour ago on the programme um, off the back of Max Hastings' column in The Time today? Do you subscribe to the, the thinking that actually, uh, especially in elected politics, we haven't got the brightest minds at the moment? I think I think we have some very, very clever people in, in politics. But I think, and, and Jeremy would have agreed with me uh, on this, uh, you don't have all, you know, the best ideas don't mm. always come from within government. Uh, he was a huge believer in going outside of Whitehall to find the best ideas, because you've got people who are really kind of dealing with things kind of day to day. And you've also got people who see things that you may not see when you're sitting in Whitehall. And it's interesting, you know, our policy winners and the, and the kind of runners up, very few of them are actually operating directly within Whitehall, but they're yeah. all people who are fascinated by public policy. And that's uh, exactly what I, I thought we might get. Um, and uh, we'll talk to some of them very shortly. We will indeed. Uh, give us some honourable mentions, uh, some people that, that didn't get prizes, anything that particularly stood out for you that you thought um, you know, were worth giving an airing. Well, we had some great entries. So, so one of our prize winners was a school student who put forward the idea, and I think this is a fantastic idea, of uh, getting university students uh, to spend time in care homes uh, with older people 
and in exchange for that, getting some kind of benefits in terms of their student grants. And, and that feels to me like a, a great idea when you start to think about it, because mm. as huge benefits for the student, uh, a lot of our lot of our young people don't get very much time to spend with it, with the older generation uh, who have a huge amount to kind of give back. It's great for those people who are in care homes who get to see different people coming in. Uh, and of course, there's a bit of benefit kind of financially for the students. Uh, he thought that was a great idea. I can imagine us using that in all sorts of different ways. Um, and it's one of the kind of runner-up ideas. So it's not not one we're going to hear from today, but yeah. it's one of the many uh, that came out of this. Uh, and were there any specific areas or, or parts of life, do you think, that, that lots of people were, were submitting ideas about in particular? You know what I mean? Could you, could you see a trend in terms of actually lots of people are focusing on, on this aspect of life or, or this particular problem? Absolutely. And actually on the website, what we've done is we've collated uh, some of the big categories where we had a lot of ideas. Yeah. So there were a lot of ideas, as you might imagine, around education, yeah. uh, trying to kind of capture some of the best of uh, some of the best of the uh, what we've learned from the kind of pandemic. A lot of it's been very difficult for many children, my, my own included, uh, but we've also learned that we can do a lot online. Lots and lots of ideas, as you might expect, around health obesity you know kind of making people healthy uh lots of ideas around things like city centers how do we you know how are we going to use our city centers in the future lots of ideas around uh using people who have uh who have skills but are not directly in the workforce so lots of lots of kind of volunteering types of ideas uh just i mean just a huge amount of creativity yeah. and innovation Really. Well, as you said, uh, we'll hear from uh, those winners in a moment. Before I let you go, though, Suzanne, um, a word on the on, on the Boardman review, which we've also covered uh, quite a bit on this station. This, of course, was the, the inquiry into what happened in uh, in number 10 with Lex Greensill and the like. Um, that review, when it came back, said that uh, Jeremy Hayward failed to fully consider conflicts of interest over a government role uh, for Lex Greensill. I, I wonder what you thought when you read that review. What did you make of it? Well, I think, as I've said elsewhere, you know, that was an incredibly biased review process. I mean, basically, from the moment the review was set up, I was asking for represent fair representation for my husband, uh, my late husband, as is usual in this sort of review. So there's many, many examples like the Dyson review of the BBC, where if somebody has passed away, you they are represented in a review. People get access to their papers and so on. For some reason, in this review, they completely denied that. So they they shut uh, shut the door on any sort of voice uh, for my late husband. Uh, the only reason I can think why that was done was to distract attention from what happened much, much later, of course, with the lobbying scandal. So it was a very kind of convenient way to switch the attention uh, to there by, by effectively kind of gagging him uh, in the review process. So it's very disappointing and, and very surprising uh, that, uh, that that should have been done in that sort of way. And just one more on this. It, it, you said that uh, previously that, that uh, the review didn't reflect the role of ministers in all of this around Lex Greensill as well. I wonder if you think that includes prime ministers, like people like David Cameron. Do you think it, he was, was let off light, lightly? Well, I mean, what, what I do know, and I have now had access to the papers, is that uh, Lex Greensill was brought into government with full ministerial uh, agreement uh, from the kind of minister of the cabinet office at the time, as you might expect, and my, my husband would have made sure that that was the case. Uh, so, I mean, I think what's interesting is the the early stage where Lex Greensill came into government actually is not, uh, I think, you know, the most interesting part of the story. It's really what happened much, much later, as we know, with both the kind of lobbying and then the collapse of Greensill Capital. Uh, I think the early stage was uh, was just a desire people had to bring somebody in who had experience of supply chain finance, 
uh, because it was a policy priority for the coalition government and they wanted it to, to be explored. And, uh, and uh, my husband was one of the people who supported that happening. Uh, but I think this is now just being used as a way of distracting attention from, from that later, uh, the later events that happened around kind of lobbying. Stay with us, Suzanne. Uh, we're going to uh, hear from some, some of the winners of the Hayward Prize, uh, which have been running. First of all, let's hear from Geoffrey Cookshanks. Uh, morning, Geoffrey. Good morning. And you won first place, is that right? Uh, yep, I think that's right, yeah. So you won first place. This was in the Prize to Find Solutions to Problems Thrown Up by the Pandemic. What, what was your idea? What did you put forward? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> it's actually, I mean, it's quite a simple idea in a way. I think it's, it was simply to create a sort of territorial army for the NHS that's using the military uh, TA as a, as a sort of model, um, but getting the NHS to itself identify the areas uh, you know, that it has where, which, which are likely to need additional trained staff in, in moments of crisis. And I think mm. the you know, crisis being epidemics, pandemics, seasonal um, overloads, <clears throat> or indeed, you know, sort of, uh, natural or, or man-made disasters. Uh, the key to it was to have the NHS um, identify those areas, but also to uh, identify discrete areas of training that they could use to, to bring in people, uh, willing, able, uh, probably young people who would be trained, uh, would have you know, some on-the-job on experience, but would really be ready to go and sort of would be immediately effective as soon as, as, soon as the need arose. So that was, that was the idea. And uh, it was, you know, the key to it was getting NHS uh, buy-in and involvement. Uh, but what kind of jobs do you think that that could be applicable for within the NHS? I mean, it's sort of unlikely that you're going to have people who are surgeons or fully qualified doctors um, who happen to be working in other jobs who, who can be tapped upon in, in times of crisis. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I mean, you know, looking at the pandemic itself, I mean, the thing that I think gave me the initial idea was was to look at the, in the first wave of the crisis, it wasn't just that the NHS was short of ventilators, they were short of people to operate ventilators. It's, you know, I think it's a specialised uh, piece of equipment. But, you know, it's, if, you, if you focus training on people who can operate ventilators, I think that, you know, you could open a, and find a store of people who are ready to do that. And I'm sure, and I'm not, a, I've never worked for the NHS, my medical experience is virtually nil, but I'm sure there are, um, you know, lots and lots of technical sophisticated equipment that uh, would lend itself just to some sort of focused specialized training. Mm. Um, and so, as I say, you know, you'd have people who could be brought in at a moment's notice to operate this. So people don't, so the NHS operatives themselves don't have to work 16, 18 hour shifts, as yeah. we were seeing at the height of the pandemic. Um, Suzanne's still with us, Suzanne Haywood. Um, what did you like about this, Suzanne? Well, I just, and by the way, we had, uh, we had a number of people who sent in various different versions of this idea, but, but this was the, was the best version of it. Um, I, I just love the idea that we create a reserve force. We have all of these people who have these skills. A lot of them are now no longer in the NHS, but why not have them kind of trained and have that experience ready so that if we have a situation like we've had recently, or indeed kind of other sorts of uh, uh, situations like a kind of national emergency, we can bring those people back. Uh, mm. I just think it's a much better way to kind of use the talent that we have in this country. And Jeffrey, what, what do you do in, in life when you're not thinking of big ideas like this? 
<laughs> well, I uh, I completed a 32-year career with uh, DHL Deutsche Post uh, a few years ago. I'm now um, working sort of part-time and semi-retired. I have a couple of uh, positions, uh, one of which is with uh, an investigations company called Nardello, another is with a e-commerce company called uh, Hurricane <clears throat> and, you know, various other projects. But, um, you know, the good thing about being semi-retired is you do have time to muse and to, uh, you know, noodle and to think about this sort of thing, which was, which was you know, very, you know, very rewarding uh, in more ways than one. So. Well, um, very good to, to have you. And, th- and thanks for uh, thanks for coming on to talk about your uh, first prize winning idea. That's Jeffrey Cruikshanks. Let's move on to uh, second prize. Uh, this was won by Andrew Beale. Morning, Andrew. Good morning, Luke. Nice are to you, be here. Are you well? I am well, thank you. Good yep. to have you with us. Um, tell us, talk us through your idea. Yeah, so um, my idea is uh, a reasonably complex one to explain, but it's to... Uh, it's, at its very basics, it's to add a fourth pillar to our governing structures. We already have the, the um, executive in the form of the prime minister, we have the legislature, um, and we have the judiciary. Um, I would like to add standing and regular citizens assemblies to that list uh, so that that becomes a right for all British citizens to, to have these and to take part in them. And how do you, and how do you envisage this looking like and actually working yeah um so in some country i mean in in ireland for example they have uh, fairly regular citizens assemblies but they are a kind of a, a gift from whatever party is trying to get into power saying we will we will offer you a chance to have some citizens assemblies so i'm i want to embed these as a right into our constitution if you like if we had one mm. um and it would have to be run by an independent body, a bit like the, a bit more like the judiciary, let's say, and kind of insulated from some amount of political uh, interference and left to do its own thing. Um, the way it would work is uh, you'd have um, uh, identify a series of, of topics. Um, there might be another kind of related body that comes up with the ideas and, and prioritizes those, but then feeds them to a series of citizens assemblies which would deliberate on that particular topic they would then make a series make recommendations back to the government the government would not have to follow the recommendations but they would have to respond to them in detail Mm, uh, within a period of time what they like what they don't like what they're going to do what they're not going to do and that um, uh, gives some accountability and the electorate can see how the government is responding to their own effectively suggestions and when the next election comes around people can see well you know we were ignored or we weren't ignored and that can feed into the next uh, how they vote and as you mentioned citizens assemblies in some forms have have appeared in various countries before ireland you mentioned has done it before um yeah is there one instance of it which you think has worked particularly well that you've thought look see this shows actually how useful they can be yeah probably the most recent one is the irish um abortion Hmm. citizens assembly uh, where the, um, the the output from that, the recommendations from that, really, uh, as I understand, triggered the uh, or made it possible for the government to, to uh, change some laws to allow um, the abortion um, 
laws to change. Of course, there was a referendum afterwards, so the results of the Citizens' Assembly fed into the, re into the referendum and how people voted there. Um, but you know, we have them in, uh, in this country. We actually uh, we had one related to, to Brexit. It was actually run by uh, a government, um, quasi-government department uh, called the Economic, Social and Research Council. Um, unfortunately, it was held after Brexit and not before, but it ah. was the idea was that it would come up with recommendations on how the negotiations should proceed. And I'm not quite sure how that was uh, received or, or <laughs> taken note of. And I wonder, is there any, are there any sort of big policy areas or, or things that you are already thinking about as uh, things that would that really need the Citizens Assembly treatment still in the offing? Yeah, well, I think one that springs to mind is, is climate change. You know, two thirds of Britons reckon that, that climate change uh, is classified as an emergency. And mm. when we look around, to my mind, we don't see what looks like an emergency response. What we see is tinkering, tinkering around the edges and tweaking. Um, you know, and another thing that having a standing set of citizens' assemblies could address is the chance that actually um, what MPs deliver is only very, I think, poorly aligned with what a well-informed electorate would ask for. We get a one shot every five years to pick um, a party um, based on a, a very top-down set of uh, options given by them. Um, we have limited choice because there's limited number of parties under first past the post. It's limited by party ideology. And we just have to plump for one of those, but it may not be everything that we're asking for. Having regular citizens' assemblies would give bottom-up signalling on a regular basis, independent of parties, and the parties could then better align their manifestos to what we want. Um, yeah. And yeah. Suzanne is, is still with us. Suzanne, what did you make of this? What did you particularly like about this? Well, I just love the idea of finding new ways to give people uh, a kind of mechanism to, to input into, in, into government and into thinking. Um, and effectively, that's what this prize is trying to do as mm. well, uh, which is to give people a voice, give them a, a, a way of sending these brilliant ideas into government. I should say, by the way, and I didn't say this before, you know, the judging for this prize was done entirely kind of blind. Uh, so we had no idea until we'd actually made all of our decisions as a judging panel. And we had a fantastic judging panel, uh, including people like Michael Gove and Ed Balls. Um, so we didn't know who had won until we uncovered uh, right at the end uh, who'd, who's kind of come out of the end. Uh, but, uh, but what we liked about this idea was, as I say, it just brings more people into some of these debates, which affect all of us, rather yes. than having them uh, just decided um, uh, by politicians. And in fact, Suzanne, uh, you mentioned earlier the idea of encouraging college students to work in care homes. Harold texts us to say uh, this would fit in nicely with an existing project called Home Share, where students are housed in the homes of the elderly to provide companionship and some limited support. That's from Harold in Wakefield. Um, let's move on to uh, third prize, uh, James Bayliss. Hi, James. Good morning. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us. What was your idea? Basically, my idea was um, after eight years of experience of not being disabled and not being able to find um, work after graduation from university with a firstly a, a BA in politics and a master's degree in international relations, I thought uh, we've got to do better than this because 51% of the public of the population with disabilities are in the same boat as I am. Hmm. You thought, hang on a minute, you know, there's so many people with disabilities, you know, sitting on benefits now that don't need to be. Yeah. And when you say 
uh, help uh, to get to get people like that in that situation into work? What kind of help do do you, do you envision? So basically, it's it's turning it's 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 getting rid of because we've done very well in this country of getting rid of barriers through the disability the disability um, discrimination act, then the Equalities Act in two thousand and ten, and the Disability Discrimination Act nineteen ninety five. But we need to go further now. It's time to go further because you're seeing things like the Paralympics, disability football on television. You're seeing things like this every day. You know, people doing people actually performing and people performing well and people actually enjoying what people are doing. So what my idea was was to get a um, a, a disability um, work experience program going in this country. So basically what the idea was basically is when people leave university, they leave university, well, you know, they've, had, they've got their qualifications, but they haven't got much work experience. And, and when it comes to disabled people, that really affects their chances of getting um, employment through, the, through interviews. So basically my idea was to basically start the, the work experience program whilst they're at university, so to put them into basically an employment situation during the holidays, so it's a few weeks, a few weeks at a time, and then possibly after that, if, if the person can still can't find work, they would go into a graduate scheme. You know, say say for example, the council. Say for example, I did a politics degree, so I would go and work in a local Leicester City Council because I live in Leicester. So I'd go yeah. and work in Leicester City Council for free. I'd get some work experience. They would pay me my expenses, but they wouldn't have to pay me, which is important because then they could cut down the expenses, but they'd still have an important value of employee and I'd still get valuable experience. Yeah. And um, Suzanne, what did you make of this? Well, I thought this was just such a good idea. I mean, in this country, we provide a lot of support for people all the way through up until graduating from university. And then what I hadn't realised until this idea came up was at that point, we don't provide people with support to get into their first job. And of course, in many ways, that's one of the most difficult steps is to help mm. them make that transition from education into, um, uh, into work. And I think if we can find a way to do that and we can get people to get into the workforce, get that experience, they're then going to be able to kind of progress with their careers from this. So, so I think it was, it was just a really interesting idea. And I know the judges were, the, the other judges were very, very excited about it as well. Fantastic idea, James. Thanks very much for, for sharing it with us. Uh, all the best. Um, that's James. He won a third prize. We've had uh, James there with his idea. We heard from uh, Andrew on his idea of uh, putting citizens' assemblies into uh, into the formal part of the UK uh, governing structure. And then also Geoffrey Wright at the top who won first prize uh, with his uh, sort of territorial army uh, for the NHS, uh, sort of territorial army equivalent. Um, Suzanne, thank you so much for your time. Um, I wonder, with all of this, all these ideas bubbling around, is it, it, must, is it inspiring you into a life of politics, perhaps? Well, no, I, I, I don't think I, I see a future for myself in politics, but what it has inspired me to do is to realise how many great ideas there are out there. And I think uh, we haven't yet decided as, a, as the Haywood Foundation what we're going to do next, but I have a strong suspicion that we will be back with another prize. So if any of your listeners are thinking about something that really needs to change in this country, uh, then please keep on thinking about it and watch out for what I hope will be the kind of next prize. And in the meantime, if they want to kind of go and have a look, as I say, at some of the brilliant ideas that have already been sent in, then please do investigate that database. And in the meantime, we're busy getting all these ideas out into Whitehall, out into government, out into think tanks. Uh, so if anybody listening kind of works for one of those or, or kind of is involved with one of them, please do point them in the direction of the website, because I think one of the most important things here is to make use of this hmm. huge wealth of ideas. Well, as you mentioned, you had Michael Gove as a judge. It was any particular policy that you think, oh, he looked like he was about to nick it? Well, actually, we've had a lot of uptake and a lot of interest within Whitehall. So they have all of yeah. these ideas. 
Um, and I, I, won't, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see some of these ideas starting to turn into reality. Wonderful stuff. Suzanne, thanks very much for your time uh, this morning. That's Suzanne Haywood, uh, who launched this prize in, uh, in memory of her husband, Jeremy Haywood. Uh, as she said, uh, more details of all the, um, all the other ideas and things in the database on their website. There you go, the winners of the Sir Jeremy Haywood Prize. Um, that is it from us. Do download tomorrow. I'm Luke Jones, sitting for Matt Chorley all week. If you want to hear all of this, but live and a bit longer, 10am to 1pm on Times Radio. You can get that up your DAB radio and on the Times Radio app.